0: Have a great time on the CIO Spotlight. We're very happy to be joined by Cameron Black, Chief Investment Officer and Treasurer of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Arizona. Cameron, thanks for being on.
1: Thank you, Stuart. Look forward
0: to the conversation. It's nice to talk to you. We've got mutual friends. We don't know each other really well, but I'm looking forward to it. We always start these off kind of the same way a little bit of a get to know you question. So uh, with that in mind, how about hometown, first job, fun fact?
1: Okay. Well, let's see. Hometown, I grew up in Los Angeles. I grew up in West LA and, you know, finished high school there and then headed off to the East Coast and then didn't quite make it all the way back to California.
0: So hometown- <laughs> Almost.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So hometown is Los Angeles. First job, believe it or not, let me put it this way. Anybody that wants to get on the CIO track should not use me as a template (laughs) because the very first job I had after college was working as a production assistant on the Geraldo show in New York. (laughs)
0: Look at that. There you go.
1: Yeah, so I worked in television for you know about uh, six or seven years. Subsequent to that, before getting more seriously into uh, into investments, so like I said, I wouldn't use my, I wouldn't use me as a template, but that was my very first job.
0: Does the Geraldo experience qualify as the fun fact? It could.
1: I would say if you're going to get the best stories out of me, it's not going to be on a public podcast. That would probably <laughs> okay. be you know after a couple of drinks uh, somewhere. But um, sure, I I think it could qualify as a fun fact.
0: Hey, listen, that's a great start. That's fantastic stuff there. So it's challenging out there, right? You know, a lot of Fed moves, inflation. Let's talk about if you took a step back and said, what are the three big issues on your radar screen today?
1: Before I tell you the three, I'll tell you what they have in common. I I would say policy has always mattered to investments, but particularly since the global financial crisis, I mean, it's almost the most important thing is trying to get, the most difficult thing to get right is policy. Meaning, are you positioned for monetary policy? Are you positioned for fiscal policy? Are you positioned for, in our case, healthcare policy, right, since we're a health insurer? And- So the three, I would say, are what are terminal rates going to be, right? So how far are we going to get
0: on uh, terminal rates? You're talking about how far do interest rates go before they level out? Correct. Yeah. So in other words, how far will the Fed get in
1: terms of raising the Fed funds rate during this cycle? Okay. Right before they level out or turn down. Yes, absolutely. The next one is also a monetary policy thing, and that is how far will they get with the balance sheet shrinkage? So lots of, of news, lots of stories out there around, around rates and inflation. That's talked about in the popular press constantly. The balance sheet thing is probably of at least equal interest, you know, given the size of the balance sheet and given the, what I would call, busted attempt at shrinking it last time, right? And you know, so how far will they really get? I've seen data saying that what they're hoping to do is shrink it a trillion and a half dollars a year for the next three years, if they are able to pull that off and put those securities out there and find off takers for them, I will be surprised if they can really shrink it that far that fast. So that is something we are watching very, very closely. At the time we're recording this, I think they've only sold off $80 billion, right, against a target of, call it $4.5 to shrink. So I don't think we've seen anything yet there. And clearly, that will be restrictive for monetary policy. The third thing to get right is, you know, trying to handicap where we're going to land on on healthcare policy. And in our case, a lot of that intersects with the operating business and less directly with the investment portfolio, but it's really important, you know, Medicaid redetermination What is the timing there? What are the implications for for our our cash flows with regard to Medicaid redetermination? Similarly, the government is changing their stance on COVID vaccine and treatment reimbursement, right? So that has a material impact to our business. And also, the somewhat ironically named Inflation Reduction Act, right? There's drug price provisions in there that are going to have a short and long term implication. So even though I represent the investment team and we're really focused on primarily on the uh, the monetary and fiscal policy stuff. We also are paying close attention to healthcare policy and what that means for the business.
0: You mentioned inflation, and I want to talk about that, but also with regard to interest rates and Fed policy, what impact has the increase in interest rates had on you? I know it's been, it obviously pushes bond prices down, but allows you to to capture higher interest rates rates on your reinvestment side. So how have you been impacted by the the recent increase in, in interest rates broadly?
1: So like all investors, right, with bond exposure, it's been painful. It was a very difficult first half of the year for us just seeing negative marks after so many years of what I would say strong returns from the overall portfolio. So that's been a little bit painful. As you alluded to, eventually we will have higher rates and we will we will welcome that particularly when they they stabilize right and that's really what we're not quite seeing yet is the signs of, the signs of stability in and as i mentioned earlier what those terminal rates might be so we're not yet excited about the higher income we can earn on an individual bond yet just because we're seeing so much volatility and likewise we have a bias toward short duration in our portfolio, probably even shorter than your average health insurer. So our core bond exposure has a duration of sub three. Oh, wow. So wow. while the pain that we experienced was not welcomed on a relative basis, we came out relatively better. Of course, we weren't getting any assists anymore from our equity exposure. You know, Some of our inflation-sensitive private book has done okay. So we finished June down mid-single digit return, which, like I said, felt bad. It felt bad going into uh, investment committee and explaining where we were. But relative to what I know some of my peers experienced, it was mitigated a little bit. So we are looking forward to being able to extend duration again. And like I said, because of our current positioning, we're just waiting to see a little bit more stability before we do that. The other area where interest rates will factor in is we have a modest amount of uh, term debt through our Federal Home Loan Bank line of credits. So we're members of the San Francisco Federal Home Loan Bank, and we had um, termed out a small amount of debt with them the first tranche of which actually matures in 2023. So at some point next year, we're going to have to make a decision about you know, either paying that down or rolling over it at, at a higher rate. But in any case, that won't be a material risk for us in either case. So I would say the reason the increased rates have been so painful for us is just because of the lack of diversification benefit in the portfolio from anything else. (laughs) Sure, of course. Otherwise, we might have felt like we were even better positioned for it. But right now, we're only around the edges. Are we starting to, you know, on an individual security basis, you know, where we've seen credit spreads widen to more historical norms? You know, are we starting to take a little bit more risk there? But we had significantly de-risked the portfolio even headed into this year.
0: So that's really helpful. If we talk about a little bit about inflation... You're obviously, due to the nature of your business, exposed to healthcare cost inflation, medical CPI, which has historically been higher than, than core CPI. And yet this time with regard to an inflation spike, it's been supply chain related in many areas. How is healthcare inflation comparing to the headline levels of inflation that are being talked about so broadly?
1: That's an excellent question. And inflation generally is always a concern for the investment portfolio. But as you just mentioned, it's particularly a concern for us as a health insurer. And so because it affects our operations directly and immediately, right? So how it's affecting us as a business, like, like everybody else, we're paying our employers more, vendor costs are going up but the the real uh, crux of it is claim costs are going up as well. And that is what drives people's rates. So, you know, there's an affordability crisis with health insurance generally already. So any spike in healthcare related CPI is really not, not welcome. We looked at this pretty closely very very recently and one of the biggest drivers that we believe you know for medical cost inflation in the near term is really going to be related to FTE expenses on the provider side right so there's a shortage of nurses for instance so they're paying nurses much more than they used to and those costs all eventually usually via contracting Get uh, pushed back to the health insurer, and then they're put into rates. So, it's affecting us in terms of you know how can we design more affordable products? What can we do in terms of contracting to mitigate this? You know, we have several large providers with which we negotiate and we've come to terms recently for rates going forward. And I will say this conversation featured prominently in those talks, and we're hearing directly from the providers that their their costs are going up. So that's the challenge for us. How do we continue to, to try and focus on affordability on something that everybody generally agrees already costs too much in the face of this dynamic? Relative to the portfolio, right, you know, we do think in terms of headline CPI, that we may we may have seen the high already. Lots of conversation about this, but we do think that we may have seen the, the high there. But as you know, core CPI tends to be stickier. The services component of CPI has ticked up uh, more relative to the goods portion. So while I do think the the catalyst for these really high numbers w- w- did have a lot to do with supply chain issues and and pandemic related things. I think the challenge for the Fed is how do they keep the expectations from getting I- embedded, and uh, and how can we get a handle on services CPI? So and that directly plays into your question on healthcare costs too, right? Because if we get to a point where Well, let me back up a little bit. If you look at at wages, the wage growth has gone up over the last year significantly, but it has not gone up in excess of headline CPI. So while people are getting paid more than they have ever been paid before, it's still not keeping up with the, the price adjustments. And so as we go forward, the question is, are people going to continue to expect and need ever larger increases in their wages and does that in in and of itself lead to future inflation you know and that, that wage price spiral question I don't think we're there but it is a risk
0: So you mentioned a moment ago that you had de-risked the portfolio some and I don't have any other like brilliant metric for this so I'm going to use the old scale of 1 to 10 <laughs> if <laughs> If five is kind of a midpoint, where are you on the risk spectrum today and how has that changed over the last 12 months and how do you how do you see it changing over the next 12? So. That's a
1: difficult question just because everybody's scale is a little bit different, right? Is that relative to ourselves or is that relative to, you know, how we we would peg risk across other, you know, healthcare portfolios, health insurance portfolios, but just using our own history as a guide and five being the midpoint, I would say we're probably at a four having come down from a five. So I did use the term de-risk. But that doesn't mean we've gone all to cash. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, what I mean by that is that we have, we're taking on our incremental investments are lower risk, but we haven't done any wholesale selling of prior positions, if that makes sense. So we're letting certain things roll off. We've brought down the duration of the portfolio around the edges over the last year. We've trimmed our ex- equity exposure by you know one or two percent. And we've really maxed out our exposure on the private side, you know. So our scheduled BA assets are fairly well maxed out. Which, although BA assets are considered the highest risk, that's not how we positioned our BA assets, right? So we have exposure to things like digital infrastructure and what I would call modest risk real estate, as opposed to putting it all in things like venture capital or, or, or the like. So it's a relative question, and I would say. You didn't even ask this question, but like, you know, where were we at the most risk seeking? I'd probably say about five years ago, probably has been the height and we've been just incrementally ratcheting down ever since.
0: It's very insightful, right? Because I mean, people like me, I, I'm not sitting in your seat. Not many people are. And to get your take on, as you said, there's no necessarily no standard in terms of a risk scale, but our, you know, using our old one to ten, it's interesting how your your risk posture was at peak five years ago, and you and now you've de-risked, and and so when you look at this market, and you had mentioned that you had relatively full on private assets, how do you see the opportunity set? Is this a situation where you think you're going to go back up from a four posture back to a five? Will you take on risk here? And if so, how do you feel about the relative value between public and private assets from your seat today?
1: Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And what I would say is there's nothing that we're seeing in the market right now that would make me believe that we're going to turn more risk-seeking, right? I think we'll get more risk-seeking when we have higher conviction and what I would say higher visibility, higher conviction around where we think the market is is headed and less volatility, right? So, you know, we're just seeing a very... Right now, if you have a view on this market, if you have a view on whether we're in a recession, you have a view on inflation, no matter what what you might have a strong view on, you could feel very, very wrong in that view one week and then feel vindicated the next. I mean, the volatility is just immense in this market. So what we've been doing, you know, if we're looking at our public book versus our private book, you know, in the public markets, we're seeing some pockets of opportunity as rates rise and spreads widen a little bit, right? But as I mentioned, we're not taking huge bets there. It's just, you know. At a point in time, we may work with our managers, managers or of our own volition, you know, pick up a little bit of extra spread or tweak our positioning across sub-asset classes, if you will. The privates are much harder to generalize about because A, they're less liquid. And, and because of that, you have to have a longer-term view in order to deploy that money. You have to feel like over, you know, depending on what kind of vehicle you're talking about, you know, usually you're you have to have a five or 10-year horizon for a thesis to play out. So the last couple of places we've allocated dollars in our private book have been to managers that have an opportunistic bent, you know, either a niche strategy, which we think is underexploited, exploited or, or really an opportunistic bent. And that includes managers that can invest both in the private markets directly or even go into the public markets if they see a significant opportunity. And we've worked with a couple managers that have done that. So I would say the biggest surprise to me personally in our private book is just how strong core real estate has continued to run. And so that is an area that we're looking at taking some chips off the table. I'm just talking about, you know, regular Odyssey core real estate has just uh, hit it out of the park. And we just don't see the case for you know, 20% plus returns year after year going forward. So taking it out of areas like that and moving it to opportunistic managers makes sense. But going back to the public markets and your question about risk in general, you know, I'm actually looking forward to being able to put more money in core fixed income, right? And I just don't feel like we're quite there yet, but we're a whole lot closer than we were six months ago. So, and to me, taking on that additional duration risk, I would consider a risk on trade. Other people might not.
0: <laughs> um, no, but uh, I, I, I think that's valid. I mean, it, I, think that's a, I think that's a valid way to look at it, right? You're adding duration, you're adding interest rate risk. But when you see the Fed with the Fed's action and how flat the yield curve is, you know, this is when you're supposed to be doing that, right? That's a, historically speaking.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we're getting ready to do that. I haven't pulled the trigger there yet, you know. And similarly, there are other long duration assets that we might get back into that we've had no exposure to for a very long time. You know, preferreds is one example of an area that, that we're not ready to put money in, but we're keeping an eye on because you know, uh, once you get compensated for taking on that that amount of risk, that will be great. So you know, for now we continue to. Put money into you know short duration income, and uh, and look for the opportunities to extend.
0: And and you mentioned liquidity, and you also mentioned your relationship with Federal Home Loan Bank. I don't know how familiar everyone knows about the Federal Home Loan Bank, but back when I was running money actively for insurance companies, and that was back when the Earth was cooling, the Federal Home Loan Bank offers a very advantageous relationship to insurance companies to be a liquidity provider, right? How are you using that relationship with Federal Home Loan Bank? How have you used it? How has it been? Can you just talk a little bit about your experience working with Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco?
1: They've been great. Our relationship with them goes back about 7 years I want to say and initially we viewed them as really a uh, liquidity provider like a you know a contingent liquidity provider as you said you know the rates are incredibly attractive, uh, the borrowing rates. I mean, but unlike a bank line of credit, right? Everything has is fully collateralized with the federal home loan bank, right? So it's collateralized with assets that insurance companies tend to own, right? So most typically, we're talking about agency mortgages. You can certainly post treasuries as collateral as well, but agency mortgages tend to be the most typical collateral that an insurance company would put up, and so that book for us has never been huge we we definitely have exposure there but it's uh, it is not primary part of our portfolio so we keep assets you know segregated so that we can use them as collateral in case we need you know short-term liquidity buffer but additionally we acquired a Medicaid company a few years back and at that time we took on some debt and used the FHLB line of credit to do that so that that was the term debt that that I was referencing earlier the term debt is not quite as attractive as the you know the floating rate borrowing costs just because they've got their own curve that they're trying to match to but still in absolute terms it's very very inexpensive so they've been a great partner and I've noticed that at least among the blues plans, I would say that more blue plan, more blue plans actually have exposure to the FHLB. You know, they have a line of credit. Not all of them are using it the exact same way. Sure. Uh, I do know I do know some insurers use it really for, you know, a spread lending program effectively, right? You know, they'll borrow, post, they'll buy more collateral and then post that. And if they can pick up, you know, 50, 75 basis points on uh, as an arbitrage between their borrowing costs and what they're earning uh, as yield on the collateral you know, that's a path some go down. I know of at least one blue plan that uses their FHLB line to essentially lever the entire portfolio just a smidge, but they're not not actually buying more collateral per se. They're just sort of keeping more dollars invested in their overall portfolio. And then I would say the majority just have it on tap as that primary source of uh, emergency liquidity.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's. I appreciate the color because I don't have a dog in the fight one way or the other, but the Federal Home Loan Bank's relationship with insurance companies, exactly to your point, it's assets that, it, you know, resi mortgages are as a core asset for most insurers. That's the collateral needed. And it just seems to make a ton of sense, you know, for an insurance company to have that relationship. As we're kind of winding down here, I just kind of asked kind of a two-sided question, are there any new asset classes that you're looking at that you think have value or or offer opportunity? And by the same token, are there any asset classes that you think are pretty full or you know have deteriorating fundamentals where you have a little concern?
1: Yeah, we touched on this a little bit. You know, where I was saying in you know core real estate scenario, we're looking to take a uh, take some chips off the table. And I do think the excitement in the areas where we're most focused on right now are, are actually in the, in the public markets. Not that excited about ratcheting up our exposure to public equities yet. You know, there's been significant volatility there, as you're aware. It's not just all in the fixed income market. And it did seem like the, you know, while well, the first quarter of this year was really the equity markets trying to just adjust to the, uh, the discount rate movement in the markets. We haven't seen a significant amount of re-rating on stocks on what I would say is based on on earnings at this point, right? So, you know, if we start to see that, if we start to see a real recession priced in, you know, we might get excited on equities again. But it's really just trying to not do anything abjectly stupid, that's really our our primary <laughs> um, goal at blue cross blue shield of arizona investments is to not do anything abjectly stupid and then just seek opportunities to incrementally add value and so so again as those spreads widen to you know more what i would say historical averages that always happens in an uneven way right you know so structured credit may move more than you know traditional you know corporate credit and so we might you know turn the dial a little bit in that direction you know when I started running money for an insurance company it really it really was all about you know the fixed income and the book yield and I would say you know the markets and the trends and the policies have really pushed us much more into the total return camp which is where I get my don't do anything abjectly stupid mandate. Um, (laughs) The other thing I will say is, you know, from a risk management standpoint, you know, our dashboards are proliferating in both number of data points that we're tracking and the frequency with which we look at that data because things do move around, you know, so fast to the point where you can feel like you're getting whiplash. And so the other mandate, or I should say the other mantra that we reflect on is things are never so bad, they can't get worse, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Don't assume just because rates have, you know, spreads have widened and yields have gone up that we're done and we need to pay close attention to that. So what I would say is visibility is down and that makes me more inclined to stay liquid rather than plow even more money into illiquids. But even there, we find opportunity, right? I mean, it's when you talk about public versus private, right? You know, that's a wide area. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and we, we believe we'll continue to see opportunities.
0: That's good stuff. I appreciate the color and I appreciate your, your expertise and, and experience in walking through this. I've had the opportunity to teach at the college level for several years, and I have a real soft spot in my heart for, um, for college students and first-generation college students in particular. And so I would just, to close, I would ask you to uh, just this one quick question. Given where everything is today, as you look out with your experience, the benefit of your experience, what would you tell your 21-year-old self if you were coming out of undergraduate institution today, looking at this market and this the opportunity set, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self?
1: So that's a really interesting question. And in fact, I have a 19-year-old son in college, right? He has never asked me for advice. Not that I don't uh, ever give him any. Um, but,
0: uh, <laughs> I have a 17-year-old daughter. That is the same. I'd like to report yeah. <laughs> back to you, Cameron, the exact same.
1: <laughs> um but what I would say, if I had, if I could go back and talk to my 21-year-old self, or if I could uh, get my own kids to listen to me, right? What I would say is, you know, particularly when it comes uh, to investments, like read everything you can. Don't just uh, stop with what the biggest media outlets are are reading. You know, try and try and suss out who the uh, the, the thought leaders are, and uh, you know, read their stuff. Assume that there are no shortcuts and really try and, as best you can, understand why you're making an investment decision and don't make too many decisions, right? Um, So what I mean by that is, if you were to try and manage money by listening to the headlines of the Wall Street Journal or CNBC, I think you would... um, find yourself in significant trouble pretty quickly if you were responding to every, every headline. So really try and, and, uh, and do your own work and, and understand what's going on with the objective of limiting the total number of decisions you have to make, right? So that's sort of the secret, I would say, to running a long-term portfolio is limit the dis- number of decisions you have to make.
0: That's fantastic. Great advice. Great, uh, great conversation. Thanks very much for taking the time and thanks for coming on, Cameron.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it very much, Stuart,
0: thank you. Cameron Black, Chief Investment Officer, Treasurer, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Arizona. Thanks for joining us. If you have ideas for a podcast, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast.